Section number 10 of Flower Patch Among the Hills. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brianna. Flower Patch Among the Hills by Flora Clickman. Section 10. Merely to be prepared. I couldn't have been asleep many minutes, though when I come to think of it, no one ever is in London, because I had waited up till eleven for Abigail. It was like this. The day before, Cook had asked me if she might stay out till eleven that night, as she wanted to go and see an old lady in whose employ she had once been. The old lady was seriously ill. She couldn't get her off her mind, and she felt she ought to give her what little pleasure she could, as she wouldn't be likely to get over it. I begged her to take the whole afternoon. Such affection was really touching. I saw myself in a few years' time, decrepit, aged, and infirm, being visited by a crowd of devoted retainers who murmured, one to another. She had her faults, goodness knows, but at least we will scatter seeds of kindness. In any case, I was pleased for Cook to take some extra time, as she is invariably home early. The naval division at the Crystal Palace have to be under glass by nine o'clock. She thanked me, but declined the afternoon as she thought half-past nine or ten in the evening would suit the old lady best. She was in a West End nursing home. It seemed late to visit one who was so aged and so ill, but of course I gave the extended leave. She returned at 10.55, looking very bright, a bunch of roses in her coat belt, a box of chocolates dangling from her finger, and a program in her hand. Yes, thank you. She had had a lovely time. The old lady, um, oh yes, she was getting on nicely, thank you. Next day, Abigail came to me also asking for an eleven o'clock leave. It transpired that she was expecting a little orphan cousin to arrive that night from Blackpool. Such a sad affair, child left without a father when it was only four years old. She was eight now. No, she hadn't ever seen the little cousin, but she felt it was such a distressing case that it was her duty to do what she could. I hinted that eleven o'clock at night seemed rather late for one who was so young and so orphaned to be up and about and likewise offered her the afternoon. But she said the train didn't arrive sooner, and the trains were often late. So I gave her till 11 p.m. to welcome the pitiful orphan. She also arrived in at night looking radiant. Under her Macintosh she was wearing a pink chiffon dress, edged with swans down, a bandeau of sparkles on her hair, a horseshoe of the same make 
adorning the back of her head, she carried a fan and some flowers that had evidently been worn on the dress. I am glad to say that she, too, had enjoyed herself immensely, and the desolate relative had been most pleased to make her acquaintance. After that, I retired. And then I conclude it was the bang that did it. At any rate, the whole household woke up with a start, and with one accord, the feminine portion precipitated itself downstairs and on to the front door mat and peered out in the dark road in the hope of seeing something the masculine element being gifted with the faculty for keeping cool calm and collected in any emergency stayed together up a few wraps and rugs and overcoats and anything else he could lay hands on in the dark including his disreputable old garden inject which he brought down and distributed among us as we had not stopped for much in the way of clothing at that moment virginia and ursula rushed along the road from their own house and joined us virginia was clad in a nightdress with a mackintosh over it and a sumptuous pale blue kimono covered with brown and black flying herons on the top of the mac ursula was wearing her heliotrope dressing gown an ostrich feather boa and an eiderdown quilt they both apologized for calling so late it was past midnight but said they felt they should just like to talk things over while i was bidding them welcome miss quirker from round the corner appeared likewise miss Tresher, a secondary school mistress and her friend mrs brush who shared a flat nearby and in the rear came mrs ridley the doctor's widow from across the road they all said they had come because they could see it better from my house which stands on a high point overlooking london one way and kent from the other side each caller was grateful for the loan of a blanket meanwhile in far less time than it takes to write all this fire engines and ambulances and policemen and motor cars and pedestrians appeared as by magic from nowhere and went tearing along the road yet crane our necks as we would not a glimpse could we catch of it miss quirker who always seems to have special and exclusive information about everything said the creature was exactly over her bedroom chimney when the bomb was dropped she heard a strange whirring noise described most graphically and turned on the electric light for company then there was a brilliant flash in the sky yes she could see it above the electric light and the bomb fell she was sure it was in her back garden 
She looked very pleased with herself and superior to think that she had been singled out by fate for this special and distinctive visitation. The man of the house, after bidding us stay just where we were, as he wouldn't be gone a minute, hide him buoyantly down the road in company with neighboring masculines, to find the bomb, I suppose. He soon returned, however, with the exceedingly flat information that a gas explosion had occurred in the house further along, though they couldn't tell whether it was due to the geyser or the cooking range, as they couldn't find either. Later on, the remains of a geyser and part of a porcelain bath were picked up about six miles off, in the Walworth Road, and I understand that the police at Seven Oaks found the remains of an alien gas stove wandering about in a suspicious manner and promptly interned it. But this is by the way. Only a gas explosion, exclaimed everybody in doleful disappointment. Mrs. Brash certainly looked relieved, but then she is a very nervous little woman with a weak heart. Well, I call it too bad, said Virginia. Every solitary relative, friend, and acquaintance I possess, even to the third or fourth generation, has had a zap cross right over their very road, and every person I've met during the last twelve months boasts and brags of the way they've had them exactly above their heads, and yet, do what I will, I can't get a sight of even the tail of one. Just my case, said everybody else in chorus. I seem to be the only one in London who hasn't seen one. But Miss Thresher cut short our bemoanings over the hardness of our lot by saying in her head mistress' voice, I'm afraid an excess of untutored imagination is one of the weaknesses of this age. We, however, can console ourselves with the knowledge that at least we are truthful, and truth, after all, is the greater asset. Looking witheringly at Miss Quirker, I replied, How about some hot coffee? It was the most appropriate remark that I could think of on the spur of the moment. Cook promptly offered to get it, while I went after tea gowns and dressing gowns and similar symbols of propriety for our shivering guests, who looked a trifle nondescript now that the lights were on. The man of the house had returned to assist at the explosion. If Miss Thresher hoped that her last remark would couch Miss Quirker, she was mistaken. Nothing can suppress that lady, and nothing is sacred to her. She will stalk up to your secret cupboard, no matter how boldly you may have labeled it strictly private, and drag out into broad daylight 
the most disreputable skeleton you keep in it, the one you pack away at the very back of the top shelf, and then be painted at your ingratitude. As I entered the room with an armful of apparel, I heard her saying to Miss Thrasher, Why don't you put a flounce on the bottom? Those cheap flannelettes always shrink in the wash. Oh, flannel, is it? Really, no one would ever think you gave that much for it, would they? At any rate, I couldn't sleep if I didn't have them right down around my feet. To change the subject, I asked Virginia why she had put her Mac on under her kimono, when obviously the correct order would have been to wear it outside. She said she concluded it was sheer genius and originality made her do it, for she had never worn such a combination in her life before, and the same must have applied to Ursula for looking back on a weird and checkered career, she could never remember seeing her sister, even once, promenading the highway in an eider-down before. At the same time, she inquired why it was that I had stood for a quarter of an hour on the doormat, clasping feverishly to my chest a pair of satin slippers and a bath towel, and clinging pathetically to a bedroom candlestick, when obviously any candle would have blown out had I attempted to light it, and the bedroom slippers would have been more usefully employed on my shoeless feet, while as for the bath towel, the coffee came at that moment. I remembered that some time ago, the kitchen had been very interested in an article in one of the dailies, giving various directions as to what should be done in case of bombs overhead. I forget a good deal of it, but I remember you had to lay mattresses all over the top floors before you came downstairs, and you have to dip a cloth in high sulfate of something to hold it to your nose as you came down to seek a place of safety. The servants were rather taken with the mattress idea, said how simple it was, and that as they had five mattresses between them, they would cover a good deal of floor space. I even generously offered them the two of my own bed, if they would come down and fetch them as soon as the zaps were heard, as long as they undertook to place them carefully above my head. When Abigail brought in the trays, I asked how many mattresses she had laid down. I never gave them a thought she owned up. My two legs seemed all that matter for me, I was sure. I saw the zeppelin thing looking straight in at my bedroom window, such sauce, and tutored imagination again, murmured Ursula in my ear. Nervous little Mrs. Brash said that was just the difficulty. When it actually came to the point, you could think of nothing that you ought to remember. Wouldn't it be well to talk the subject 
over and aside a few things merely to be prepared now that there was a group of us together miss thresher who loves the importance of being any sort of office enthused over the idea said we had better have a committee meeting there and then to be forewarned was to be forearmed she told us with an impressive air of wisdom she said she would be minute secretary and we must draw up schedules stating definitely and clearly what a woman ought to do first by way of preparation beforehand and secondly when crisis actually arrived miss quirker endorsed this and remarked in an aggrieved tone in my direction that she should have thought the women's paper would have dealt comprehensively with so important a subject long ago she added however that she thought crisis was far too respectable a name to give them had she not been a staunch churchwoman she would have called them something far more vividly appropriate i didn't hear the end of this because i slipped away to find the man of the house as i had heard him returning doors opening the study door my eyes fell on such an uprival that for the moment i felt certain a gas explosion must have been at work there but no he explained turning out yet another drawer that he was only looking for an insurance policies as he wasn't quite certain what was the attitude of the companies toward geysers i pointed out that it didn't matter as we hadn't one but we went on looking and his face wore that tense expression seen on most men when hunting for the family screwdriver or the pair of black gloves kept for funerals having found the policies at last in the drawer where they had always been kept by the way i left him in peace to peruse them at his leisure the ladies committee was well under way when i returned to the dining room and as in the correct thing at such gatherings everybody was talking at once and on the most diverse topics i consider myself rather great on ladies committees i've even occupied the proud position of being in a chair on occasion and the more i see of them the more i am lost in admiration of the courage versatility and insuperability of my sex why there's no man living who could trail as many totally irrelevant topics across the agenda and in defiance of a politely pleading chairwoman too as can the littlest and frailest woman at any ladies committee you like to name as it was the only one who seemed within a hundred miles of zeppelins was poor mrs brash was explaining to mrs ridley it isn't that i mind dying we all have to die some day but i do prefer to die whole 
Of course the doctor's widow pooh-poohed this as nonsense, and asked severely what would become of surgeons if everybody felt like that. Miss Tresher couldn't find a suitable heading for her schedule until Ursula suggested antiseptics. Mrs. Ridley thought the medical profession might not approve of the unprofessional use of the word, but it was accepted by the majority, and then we all settled down wholeheartedly to attack the problem from every point of view, which included, among other things, borax as a preventive for moth, Queen Mary's graciousness, a comparison of the respective merits of local butchers, economizing on corsets, and the war loan. Perhaps you can't see how this came in, but it was simple enough. Miss Quicker said that, after all, explosions that you thought were zeppelins weren't so bad if they enable you to get such good coffee as mine. And might she have a third lump of sugar, please? It was such a treat to get a really sweet cup of coffee. She had given up sugar at home as she was economizing on it. Being the hostess, I couldn't exactly tell her that I, too, was trying to economize on mine. From the high price of sugar, we naturally floated on to the ruinous tendencies of butcher's meat, and Mrs. Brash explained the trouble she had with her butcher because he wouldn't send home all the bones. Mrs. Ridley had similar harrowments to relate about her butcher, but his vice took the form of sticking to the trimmings from the joints which she was sure he sold at a good price for soap-making, now that fat was so scarce and soap likely to be dear. She knew it because, as she reminded us, she was the treasurer of the Women's League for encouraging the troops to wash, and it came very hard on their funds. What it would cost them, for the cakes of soap they were going to send out, no one would believe. No, they hadn't sent any yet, but of course they were going, too, when they got enough members. And by the way, would I join? She didn't mind a fair charge, of course, we all murmured agreement. War was war, and we must expect to pay something extra to help the king keep going. He had his family to provide for, like any other man. Neither did she grudge on solitary penny that went to Lord Kitchener. Hearty applause. No, indeed. But what made her blood boil was to feel that she was actually washing her hands with her own ribs, and at one and three pence half penny a pound too. Virginia suggested she should try a rather less heating soap, but she was drowned by Miss Thresher, who said firmly, Borax, that's what you ought to send to the troops. Not only would it soften the water for them, poor things, and no one knows better than I do what awfully hard stuff that German water is nearly scrapped my skin off when I went up the Rhine two years ago. 
but they would find it so useful to put in with their woolen things that we've been knitting them to keep out the moth. My reminder that our troops were not as yet uh, Alice drawing their water from German cistern was unnoticed, for the mere mention of moth produced extraordinary animation. Was borax good? Weren't they a perfect nuisance? And so on. I said I always put it in with my furs and never had a moth near them. I wonder if that's what they put with Queen Mary's furs, said Mrs. Brash. I never saw more lovely sables than those she had on when she came to the hospital yesterday. Miss Thresher verified this last statement absolutely superb they were, and Miss Thresher had the right to speak, for the Queen had bowed straight at her as she stood on the curb, as near to her as I am to you. Miss Corker said that for her part she didn't think there was another woman in the world so gracious as Queen Mary, except, of course, Queen Alexandra. She would bow to anyone she saw, no matter how shabby they were. Mrs. Brash hurriedly said what she so much admired in Queen Alexandra was her figure. Miss Quirker continued, Yes, and speaking of corsets, I want to tell you of another economy besides doing without sugar to help the nation. You should buy your corsets several sizes larger than usual, and then, when they are getting worn, you can turn them upside down and wear them the other way up. It's so saving. Ursula said she quite believed it, because she knew if she turned her long corsets upside down, they would reach high enough up to support the military collar at the back of her neck, and thus saving boning. I felt it was high time we got back to antiseptics, and suggested that we should put something in the first column of the schedule, which was headed, things to place in redness beforehand. Mrs. Brash announced that she wasn't ever going to take her clothes off any more till the war was over. If this was the sort of goings-on we were to expect, General opinion, however, was decidedly in favor of, at any rate, removing the outside frock, simply because we none of us saw any prospect of ever being able to afford to buy a new one. Then we all said what we thought ought to go into that column. Woolen undies, a fur-lined coat, a thick dressing gown, a raincoat, a traveling rug, and all sorts of other things were to be placed close to the bedside. This was insisted upon as a matter of the greatest importance, otherwise in the dark we should never find anything, and of course it wouldn't be safe to have a light. Miss Thresher and Miss Quirker had a small subcommittee on the subject of stockings. Should they be worn all night in bed? 
Miss Treasure said obviously it was the only sensible course. Miss Quirker objected that she should kick hers off in her sleep in any case. Hers was such a delicate skin, as a child people had always remarked on it, though probably women less sensitive than herself might be able to endure them. But if she lost hers among the bed clothes, she would never find them in the dark. Eventually, they compromised by agreeing to safety pin a pair to the front of the nightdress as they fasten your handkerchief to you in the hospital, so that at least they would know where to find them in case of precipitate flight. Meanwhile, the question, should hats be worn, necessitated Ursula and Mrs. Brash going into another subcommittee on the lounge. Mrs. Brash favored a shawl, preferably white, being draped over the head. It was more suited to the negligee condition of the hair. This led her to consult Ursula about the winter's hat she was evolving. She had had an exceedingly good white and black crinoline hat the summer before last, and the winter before last she had had a very lovely violet velvet tuck to the rich deep color favored by Queen Alexandra. Last winter she had taken the violet velvet from the hat of the winter before and put it over on the crinoline hat of the summer before. You can follow this, I hope. And everybody had admired it. Now she proposed to return the violet velvet to its original toque, only this time she would smoother it with some violets she had by her, and she had a really beautiful little sable skin which she proposed to put round the brim. Did Miss Ursula think the violets and the fur would combine well? Ursula said she herself didn't care for fur and flowers in combination, because she always associated sables with snowy northern regions, whereas violets suggested soft spring days and awakening woods and gardens. Miss Brash who had never thought of putting things together in that way before, said how very poetic it was. Then would Miss Ursula think that quills would look better? After all, birds and flowers went together. Ursula agreed and added that she had even found the neighbor's fowls scratching up the white violets one day. Mrs. Brash seemed to feel that was conclusive proof of the desirability of the combination. And in that case, should the quills tilt outwards or inwards? No, she didn't mean inside the head, of course, but across the top or off the head. Yes, perhaps it would be the best to tilt them backwards, and she should fasten them with a large cameo that had belonged to the late Mr. Brash's mother, 
prolific details as to the grasping character of Mrs. Brash, Sr., who had never given her a thing except this cameo. Finally, she aired her only anxiety. Would the shape of the winter before last took still be worn this winter? Ursula assured her that the shapes of the winter before last will be worn till the war is over, and by the time we shall have become so attached to them that we shall refuse to part with them. After we had collected a fairly comprehensive pile of clothes, including most we possessed, and placed it all close beside the bed, jewelry came under discussion. Naturally, no one wanted to lose even the smallest tiara, and we were all quite sure the government wouldn't include jewelry in the insurance. So we collected our trinkets and placed them on top of the garments. It was astonishing how much we each seemed to possess, and how careful we were to enumerate it all. Mrs. Brash enlarged tearfully and at a great length on the diamond necklace her late husband had given her. This opened up a wider question. How about silver plate? Yes, how about the silver? Each one echoed. Was it likely we were going to hand over our teapots, shoe lifts, candlesticks, pin boxes, spoon and forks, hairbrushes, entry dishes, and photo frames to the enemy? No, indeed not. So we all luggage our plate chests to the bedside, though Miss Tresher said she would put hers in all into a laundry bag and hang it on the bedpost. It would be easier to carry that way. Then a number of side issues cropped up. Virginia had just invested in the war loan. There was her script. Mrs. Brash couldn't think of leaving behind the portrait of her great-grand-uncle, the Admiral, always thus referred to as though no other had ever existed. Whereupon we all remembered we had ancestral portraits calling for preservation. After all, it doesn't look well if you haven't. Miss Quirker decided she would take the bedspread she had crocheted for their forthcoming Red Cross Bazaar, but didn't intend to give it to them now it was finished. It was far too pretty. Besides, the secretary had only put her name in a small type among other ladies helping, below the stall holders, and just think how she had slaved over that bazaar. Mrs. Ridley said that whatever else went, she meant at all costs to save the presentation clock, given to her late husband by a very celebrated patient whose name she was not at liberty to state. I'm inclined to think this was mentioned as a set-off against Mrs. Brash's diamond necklace. 
the late Mr. Brash, though an admirable husband, did not seem to have generated anything remarkable in the way of public steam, whereas the late Dr. Rydal was known to be anything but generous. Mrs. Ridley had no diamonds, but the clock was a solid granite made on the model of a pyramid. It was surmounted by a coy-looking sphinx representing about a quarter of a hundred weight of bronze metal. Accompanying the pyramid, one at each end of the metalpiece was a pair of heavy granite obelisks, like Cleopatra's needle, but just a size smaller. It took both the servants to lift the clock every time the metalpiece was dusted, Mrs. Ridley explained with pride. Besides, the obelisks were very useful to hang her knitting bag on, and so appropriate to with our brave lads out there rallying around and defending the poor sphinx from the Turks. Virginia whispered in my ear it was no wonder the bronze lady looked so cheerful. So, of course, these weighty items joined the jewelry at the bedside. Other valuables rapidly suggested themselves. Also more sordid things, such as matches and candles, a tin of biscuits, a small stove and kettle, for use if we had to sit out in the road all night gazing at a ruined home. And of course we place pails of sand and buckets of water close at hand, to use if it should be an incendiary bomb. I hoped I shouldn't hop out of bed straight into the water. Here Ursula reminded me that the pile of sand placed on the platform of our London station several months, or was it years ago, for antiseptic treatment was now sprouting luscious grass. Obviously the lawn mower and the garden roller must be added to the bedside museum. But I told her afterwards she had better keep quiet if she lacks the ability to grasp the strenuosity of any situation where a group of conscientious women are conversing on the subject of doing something. As it was, her remark only incited Miss Quirker to spend a tedious five minutes in explaining to her how impossible it would be for a single woman, with only one maid, to get the garden roller upstairs, and another ten in giving her recipes for exterminating grass, while Mrs. Ridley went off at a tangent on the shortage of gardeners and the advantages of paraffin over fish oil as a lubricant for mowing machines. I only succeeded in getting her back to the agenda by begging her to advise us, as she was such an authority on paraffin, whether to take an oil stove 
or a spirit lamp for the outdoor encampment. At length, when any ordinary bedroom must have been packed quite full and suggestive of furniture depository, Virginia's voice rose above the babel. But what I want to know is, how am I ever going to get into bed? You may well ask, said her sister. Look at the time. Just you come along home with me. I'll show you. Where's my eider down? Miss Tresher besought them to stay a few minutes longer, merely to decide what to do when the Zeppelins actually arrived. But Ursula said they had got all their work cut out to get through the preparatory stages of the schedule. So the committee adjourned. As they went out, a figure came out of the kitchen side entrance and made for the coach house carrying a big cardboard box. Is anything the matter, Abigail? I asked. No, madam. I'm only hiding all our best hats in the stable. I expect they'll be less likely to find them there. But the Zepps aren't exactly like burglars, I said. No, I suppose you're not, she replied. But when a creature like the Kaiser gets nosing about among the stars, as well as trying to rampage all over the earth, there's no telling what he'll be up to next. It's as well to be prepared. End of section 10